Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. Um, please enter your questions and comments in the chat window if you're watching us live on the YouTube channel. But for right now, we're streaming live on YouTube, and, and I hope you will join the conversation. So with all that said, Jeff, take it away. Good afternoon. Thank you, Drew. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. We're going to be continuing our study of the book of James today. We're going to finish it up. We're joined, as usual, by Joe Works coming to us from Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Hello, Jeffrey. And we are joined, uh, you may think, by Mayor Humdinger from Paw Patrol, um, but it's actually Chase Byers from Fishers, Indiana. Hello, guys. How are you? I set, I set myself up for that one. Yes, you did. Good. Now I've got to go look him up, see what he looks like. Oh, no, there he is. Okay. Um, <laughs> we've been walking through the book of James. I think, guys, we're going to probably pick it up here in James chapter 5, about verse uh, 13. Is that about where we are today? But yep. let's take just a moment to just go back, set the stage. James is a very Jewish letter. It's Jewish both um, in, in well, a, a lot of what James deals with is what Jesus dealt with especially in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount and in his addressing the Pharisees, for example, in Matthew chapter 23. Um, James, of course, in Jerusalem, very prominent in the church there and very concerned about those who were believers but were zealous for the law. Uh, I, I think, guys, I don't know what you think, but I think James was a very early letter. Um, that would be my take on it. Um, but uh, anything else you want to say about just what we've talked about so far? Would you say it's a practical or a theoretical letter? Practical. In fact, that's kind of the point. Your religion needs to be practical if it's going to be worth anything. Uh, that's a lot of what he has to say. Well, uh, Joe, why don't you kick it off? Why don't you start in with James chapter 5, verse 13? Read as far as you want to read to give us what we're going to first talk about. No, I don't think I will. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, I'm stuck on your question. Uh, I think it's an awesome question, um, but I'm just wondering the other letters to the Christians. Yeah. Are they practical or are they theoretical? Well, you know, you can't find a letter that's just theoretical, but there are, there are letters, the book of Romans, you know, Paul spends 11 chapters talking about kind of doctrinal themes um there are practical points made through there but he really gets down to kind of the practical applications especially in chapter 12 the book of ephesians paul spends three chapters emphasizing what god has done for the gentiles in christ and their standing in the house of god uh and then it's not till chapter four that he gets around to talking about practically speaking what it means to walk worthily of our calling but James, it's kind of like right from the beginning. So I wonder if we could view, and, and I think you and I are in complete agreement about sure. all of those things, but I'm wondering if we could view chapter one as somewhat of that theoretical setup, that, that it's the word of God that we need to be focused on. And then he talks so much about faith and the application of that and so forth. Uh, I won't. Not, wouldn't argue about that at all, but but your, your question made me think through, are there some uh, doctrinal statements that are made early in the book that sort of set the stage for the rest of what he says? Yeah, um, you, you're right. And, you know, I, I talked recently in a sermon here at Exton 
Um, I can't remember what the overall topic was about, but I was talking about kind of this distinction that we make between doctrinal and practical, and we've, we've thrown the term theoretical out here. That's probably not a good term, and maybe yep. the idea of doctrinal as distinguished from practical is not really great either. That's kind of a distinction we make. In, in the Bible, doctrine is very practical. And uh, it's just the word teaching that gets translated doctrine. It's just the word teaching. And, um, and, and so what we're really talking about, I guess, is principles where there are principles that underlie the application. And um, so, and we do see some principles there in chapter one that kind of lay the foundation for what he says yeah. going forward. Yeah, no disagreement at all. It, it just, your, your, your initial question just really made me, sort of do a very quick scan thinking about the book. And so I appreciated that very much. Now I will obey your instructions and begin reading in, <laughs> in James 5. With 13. I get the blessings of getting to watch the reactions from Jeff when I say rather. Yeah, I mean, so so next, next, go ahead, Jeff. Not next week, we're going to have a new platform, video platform, and they'll be able to see all of us at the same time. Which, which means we're going to have to watch our reactions. <laughs> if, if only they could see how Jeff treats us behind the scenes, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank, Wait you, a minute. Thank you for saying that out loud. I appreciate that. Okay. On to, on to serious things. James 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. I'll pause there, really, like in this uh, pericope, um, uh, the uh, one verse just leads right into, you can look at the next version. Of, we just got done talking about sins being forgiven. Now he's talking about confessing in the next verse. So it's almost like, We'd have to read all the way through to get the full text, but I'll pause uh, 13 through 15, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. The first thing I want to say is, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, you know, so often through the years, this passage has puzzled people. I'm sure you've had the same experience. People come to you with questions about anointing him with oil. And and I'll I'll give you my take on it. Um, James, I don't believe here is talking about anointing with oil as some kind of liturgical act. Um, it's it's not something that has mystic powers. Uh, if you go through the Bible, the idea of things uh, of oils, anointing people with oils, that was a a prominent means of cleanliness, hygiene, caring for the sick. Uh, we can think of when Mary comes and anoints Jesus um, in John the 12th chapter, um, all the way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 37, when Joseph is sold to slave traders, they were carrying balm of Gilead. Um, that was just a product. That, and, and so what I think James is saying, going back to our idea of practical, you know, Early on in James chapter 2, he talked about the contrast between praying for somebody who's in lack of daily food and you say, be warmed and filled, but you don't do anything about it. When the elders go and visit somebody who is sick, uh, 
you know, rather than just going and saying a prayer and thinking you've, you've done all you can, do something. And, and anointing with oil would be a common thing to do to care for the sick. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't take a strong position on the, the, the significance of the, the oil uh, and so forth. It, it, this is almost one of those passages where it, there, there's, there's not much of a context. And so we were sort of left to, to wonder, is this physical or is this spiritual and so forth? And a number of those passages, I just kind of wonder if it's not written for us to wrestle through some of those things. I don't just mean that as a cop-out, but you know, Jesus would use the word asleep. You know, Lazarus sleeps. Now, he didn't really mean that he was asleep um, or sleeping in Christ in First Thessalonians and so forth. Sometimes there's there's thoughts. Um, what's the passage? What's the words that are used in uh, the Lord's Supper discussion in First Corinthians 11? For this many, for this reason, many are sick and sleep. Is that physical or is that spiritual? Good well, question. You know, those words. They. It, it's like. Well, either one of those would be pretty significant. Either one of those would be powerful, and 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 they both kind of fit. You know, mm -hmm. um, there there may be a better argument one way or the other, but I, I like the fact that we are. It, it causes us to to step back and say, well, what can I do in this situation? Yeah. Well, and it, it kind of gets to if one of you mentioned this, I apologize for missing it. Jesus in Mark six, or excuse me, yeah, yeah, Mark six, when he sends the disciples out, he tells them to anoint. Uh, sick people with oil and healed them. Um, did one of you mention that? Am I did not, but let's read it. Yeah, so this is Mark 6 in verse um, in verse 7. It says, Jesus summoned the 12 again to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And down in verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So in that context i would take that literally I, I would imagine they are actually anointing people with oil and heal and they are they're healing people through doing that and so i don't know how, how have you guys normally taken that kind of anointing you know that's an interesting point i i would i could see there that you know so often when when there was a an apostle who healed somebody there was something done to connect the the result with the messenger, even where whether it was Peter's shadow cast over the sick or the handkerchief taken from Paul to the sick. There was some connection made. And so I could see that maybe they would anoint people with oil, and in so doing, that was the means of connecting the messenger with the miracle. Um, which then raises the question in James chapter 5, are we talking about elders who in fact do have these gifts of healing and their anointing with oil in that same way? I had not made that connection, Jane, uh, um, um, Humperdinck, I mean uh, Chase. Um, I, <laughs> I had not made that connection. Uh, it is rather intriguing, about, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So... Sorry, it's it's humdinger, not humperdink. <laughs> Sorry, that, that just got me. Sorry, uh, that's what that's what happens when when us boomers try to relate to the younger generation. Yeah, that's that's the happens. generation that watches Paw Patrol. Well, all right, my I have a four year old. Okay, <laughs> my four year old watches it. Uh, 
but anyways, but it also connects, I think, this train of thought led me to what Paul said to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 5, when he is in the context of, of talking about supporting elders or uh, appointing elders, rather. Mm -hmm. um, he says to him uh, in verse uh, 22, this is 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, don't be too quick to lay your hands, or my translation says a point, but my understanding is it literally is, to lay your hands on an elder, um, there's there must be something I think liturgical. I, I wanted to use that word, but I didn't know how. <laughs> but that that idea I think is literal. Paul is saying Timothy, lay your hands on these men and, and appoint them. I you know what I have in that particular passage. There's a couple ways you can take it, but you you know this is a, a little bit of an aside. But I think we've got time today. The, the idea of laying on of hands is mentioned in Hebrews 6 as among the things that were fundamental that a, a Jewish believer coming to the gospel would already understand, along with resurrection, repentance from dead works, and so on. Laying on of hands is mentioned. In, in the Old Testament, you see Moses laying hands on Joshua to appoint his successor. You see laying on of hands by the, the church at Antioch on Saul and Barnabas as they send them out. Um and I wonder if we don't sell that a little short sometimes, that that was a recognized gesture whereby people were designated to certain tasks or certain tasks were designated to certain people. And with that in view, um, now I forgot where we even got started. Oh, yeah, First Timothy 5 and, and, and your thought that it might be liturgical. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, but I will say, I'll flip the other coin, I'll go to the other side. I mean, when we think about anointing, we think about Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit. The idea is being covered in something and there, there being just that idea of something so being covered. And, and in First Timothy 5, or excuse me, in James chapter 5, I think that could also be the idea is the, the spiritual application. He's a these elders are anointing, they're covering, pouring over this person with prayer and support and love and service. And these righteous men, when they do that, uh, you know, there, there's there's real hope for that person. So maybe that that's more the idea. Well, it, we're going to go on in this context in James and as Joe, as you said, we, we kind of stopped in the middle of the context. What obviously what he says further is related. And we, um, we didn't really we didn't get to we didn't even talk about thirteen the the beginning of thirteen, did we? No, let's or, do. Or let's do. Yeah, let's do. So what what do you call this? If somebody's suffering, pray for them, or or if anybody's suffering, pray. If anyone's cheerful, sing psalms. And then again, I think sort of connected that, that verse break, maybe ignore somebody sick, let him call for the elders. So you're in these different circumstances. Here's the thing you need to do. If you're suffering, you pray. If you're cheerful, you sing psalms. What would be the connection between those? Obviously, there's some there's a contrast between sick and uh, or suffering and cheerfulness. But have you thought about the, the comparison there as well? Rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, be of the same mind one toward another. Um, in other words, share in one another's joys and sorrows. Is that where you're going? That, I was so, going from Romans chapter 12, but go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great place to go. Um, uh, and so we might just think a little bit about uh, the importance of having uh, empathy. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, 
just recently, my family took one of those uh, uh, tests that are uh, extremely scholarly and uh, scientific online to uh, discover your empathy. <laughs> a little, little uh, bit of sarcasm there. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit of sarcasm dripping there. Um, but it was to, to, to describe our empathy quotient. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to say what all the scores were, but I did score the highest. Um, and uh, But did uh, you have empathy for those in your family who had low scores? No, because I wanted to show how easy it is to cheat on something like that. Um, <laughs> and so what I, I just went through and answered every question the way that I suspected they were wanting the, the, the answer that they were looking for. With the exception of a couple, I purposely missed because you never want to get a perfect score or else it's obvious that you're cheating. Wow, um, you practice this. But we've had we've had sort of a running joke about you know what kind of a person cheats on an empathy uh, <laughs> test, you know. Um, but I think that there may be something to learn from that. Uh, in are we really thinking about what's going on in other people's lives? I think that application over to Romans, um, and then connected even with that next verse there in James, the elders are going to pray for them uh, mm -hmm. as well. Um, so I think that's a, a great thing to to think about as it applies to others. All through the book of James, it's been concerned about other people, right? Um, yeah. A viewer, Jim Portillo, uh, comments that he sees a contrast here, and and there is a contrast. If somebody is cheerful, you're you're going to be cheerful with them. Um, if he's suffering, you're going to pray with him. But the contrast, I think, that Jim is seeing here is at either end of the spectrum, wherever somebody is in what they're dealing with be able to share that with them yeah and so in in verse 13 maybe let me even go further back in the discussion who is the one who's praying and who is the one that is singing is it somebody with these people or is it these people themselves well in verse 13 the one who's suffering is to pray uh in and the one who's cheerful is to sing praise um and in 14 it's the one who's sick who's to call for yeah, the elders right and then the elders are to pray with them uh pray over them so right. i just think that you know in our in our emotions in whatever state we're in it is incumbent upon ourselves to to take actions um and i noticed that especially with verse 13 but also i would even include verse 14 all three of those things have in common getting to god somebody's suffering he prays mm -hmm. somebody who's cheerful they sing songs well who do you who are you singing psalms to you're, you're, you're praising God, right? Um, and then the person who is sick, they're reaching out to the leaders of the congregation to to pray for them as well. You, you know, I'm glad you asked that question. Who is it that's to pray? Who is it that's to sing praise and so on? Because I, I kind of had missed, missed that. I think when I look back at this, just as we got started into this, my mind immediately went to Romans 12 and I and I read this as if it were Romans 12. It's related, but it's not. I, I miss that. Good. I, I have empathy for that. I do that sometimes as well. Um, so, uh, but but I do think that we ought to think about, you know, whatever's going on in our lives, we need to take that to God. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we we sort of stew or, you know, maybe we, you know, we're, we have some reason to be cheerful. We begin to think too highly of ourselves rather than, you know, singing psalms of praise to God. Yeah. I heard someone once say that you have here in this section praying Christians, praying elders, praying friends, and then a praying prophet. Wow. That'll preach. 
I like yeah. that. So, so, uh, I don't know. Are we ready to talk about the praying prophet? Sure. This is a passage that is a little bit interesting because James' point is to cite Elijah in in verses sixteen and seventeen as an illustration of the fact that the prayer or the supplication of a righteous man avails much. Look at Elijah. Uh, he prayed, and it didn't rain for three years and six months. And and then he prayed again, and it did rain. So there you go. Um, that's, your, that's your example. That's your pattern. That's what we can do. And yet, we think of Elijah's prayer, and we think, well, he was a prophet of God, and I, and he, that was, that was not just, I mean, that, that was like a miracle kind of thing. That's the category we put that in. And so we almost look at that and we say, well, that doesn't apply to us, but James is saying it does. So let's talk about that a little bit. So was Elijah a man with a nature like ours? I mean, it's Elijah, you know, he, 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 one of the two men in the Bible who never died. Yeah. Um, he you says know, like passions with us. That's hard to, I, I, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with the text. I'm just saying yeah. how astounding that thought is. Mm -hmm. We, mm -hmm. we elevate some men and women of the scriptures to such a level that we almost feel like we can't relate to them. And James is saying, Oh no, you need to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Elijah represents kind of all of the prophets. I mean, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, there was Moses and Elijah, you know, kind of representing the law and the prophets. And yet there's there's moments that Elijah has uh, real downs. Um, and I think in the midst of of this specific three and a half uh, years that's being talked about is First Kings 19, where after the great heights of uh the the bales and um on mount carmel you see elijah just absolutely crushed and feel alone and go into a deep and dark place that i think all of us have been in at different times in our lives and um although he is a man with a nature like ours uh he still prayed and that's what's being urged here i think for us as well and the power of prayer specifically i think is what's being addressed and, and i think that maybe at least correct me if you think I've, I've missed it here, but I think whether what happened was miraculous or not, whether we would put it in that category or not is kind of irrelevant to the point here. Uh, the fact is he was a man and God responded to him and yeah. God will respond to our prayers okay. and how God chooses to respond, whether he chooses to do it, as a sign so that somebody like Nicodemus could say, wow, the signs which you do, no man can do except God be with him, or whether he chooses to do it in a, in a more, for lack of a better expression, more subtle way, uh, is, is really kind of irrelevant to the point that James is making. That's up to God, and God has worked at various ways and various times, and he certainly was working in a way to give people reason to believe, to give signs in, in the first century, and it, uh, and yet that's not, I don't think that's what James is getting at. I think he's just getting at the fact um, um, a righteous man can pray to God and God's going to hear that prayer um, and, and he'll respond to us. Yeah, that really, it really is an amazing thing. I think that's kind of the emphasis. And um, I'm thinking about some of the language toward the end of, I believe, of Second Samuel, where because of a man's prayer, it says it changed the mind of God and just being in the 
in awe of the the power of prayer that God even gives us a way to communicate with Him and and plead our our heart and our case to Him is something that we should be thankful for, and it should up our desire, increase our desire to want to pray. Yeah, yeah, we certainly see that with. Uh, God's expressed desire to destroy the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai and to create a new gener- a new nation through Moses. Uh, Moses prayed, God listened to him and relented of his intentions there. Um, so yeah, another example of, of the power of prayer. So looking at this text in James, and I, do you have something else on that, Chase? I don't want to... No. Oh. No, I, I just wanted to give a reference. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, 25 uh, was what I was thinking of. I just wanted to make sure I referenced that. Good. Is that, uh, trying to remember, is that in connection with the uh, uh, sin of David? Yes, yeah, um, yes. Yeah, yeah with okay. the census right. and all that. Good. So, you know, looking at the uh, James 5, 16 and 17, you know, the end of 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with the nature of ours. Have, have we have we switched topics in the middle mm-hmm. of verse 16? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we're talking about prayer, but earlier we were talking about prayers of trespasses and uh, prayers of sick and so forth. And now, is this just a random example of effective prayer taking place? Or is there a deeper connection with Elijah that maybe I might be somewhat inclined to, to miss? Educate us. Well, there, there's no, I don't know that I have anything direct on this, but if we think about Elijah and the, it not raining and it raining, who, who was the king that that was greatly affecting? Ahab. Wicked and, king. What was Ahab's? Remember the story with with Ahab, uh, Jezebel, the Baal worshippers, Mount Carmel. Yep. Um, uh, Ahab then, um, well, Ahab and Jezebel ended up killing Naboth, and the Lord condemned Ahab in First Kings twenty one, mm-hmm. and then Ahab repented. Uh, look at First Kings twenty one twenty seven. Mm-hmm. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his body, fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I'll not bring the calamity in his days. Uh, but in the days of his son, I'll bring calamity on his house. You know, here you've got somebody who has been condemned and repents and uh, changes we don't have it specifically saying that Elijah prayed for him, but it, it just sort of like, as I'm thinking about somebody who is confessing their trespasses in verse 16, then all of a sudden to jump into the story of Elijah, it just makes me want to go back and see, is there an intended connection there? Am I stretching things too much there? Feel free to say that I am. Are, are you trying to connect I'm sorry if I got lost. So are you trying to figure out why James is referencing Elijah? Is that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah, in, in the particularly in the connect, in the connection of confessing your trespasses and so forth. Okay, okay, thank you. You know, it seems like that idea of confessing your trespasses. So Ahab has repented. Uh, he's humbled himself. And then God sends uh, Elijah um, uh, to, uh, well, or God tells Elijah that he has... Uh, forgiven or he is 
not going to bring that calamity in. I don't know. Let's explore it a little bit. I had not really thought about that, but you do have the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick and, and raise him up. And back in James, I mean, back in first Kings chapter 17, Elijah had actually raised the widow's son from the dead. Uh, he prayed to God in verse 21 and the Lord heard the voice of Elijah in verse 22 and the life of the child returned. Um, I don't know. It's it, it maybe there. Maybe James is is seeing a number of connections to Elijah. Yeah, it, I, it 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 would appear to me that you know almost all the time. I'll just put the word almost there just to cover myself. When a, the New Testament is using an Old Testament example, there's more to it than just the the phrase that's used. Yeah, Elijah was a great was was somebody who really knew how to pray really well. But I wonder if there's not more connections, that, and I, and that's one that I had missed as far as the the raising the sick. Um, you you have oil mentioned in connection with Elijah, but not anointing that I recall. You've got the widow at Zarephath uh, and her jar of oil, um, but it's I don't think there's a mention of anointing in connection with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, powerful. I think I could think the connection there, but. I, it is powerful, and isn't that that is? I would say definitely the point on the latter part of the verse. I mean, just the power behind prayer. But all right, so but Joe, were you going to add something there? Well, I was just uh, even even verses nineteen and twenty of, of James five. Um, somebody wandering from the truth and uh, him coming back. Um, yeah, I have I have thought about that, not in connection to Elijah, but that it feels like he's picking up a thought that we would have seen right there in verse sixteen. Okay, well, what if they don't confess their sins? What if there's someone who's been hiding them and has walked away from the truth? What then? Well, James is answering that and saying, well, you go after them. If they stray from the truth and you turn them back, uh, you've turned a sinner from the error of his ways. You've saved a soul from death and you've covered a multitude of sins. There's a real obligation for Christians to continue to go after the brother or sister that is strayed from the truth. And I, I, I guys, for one, I think that's something we need to emphasize more in, in congregations and among Christians that if in the horrible event and sad event that we do have to withdraw from someone like Jesus talked about in Matthew 18 or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3, it's not the end once they've been withdrawn from. There's still some follow-up that we should be doing and uh, striving to, to turn them back. So I, I want to just read through this, having talked a little bit about it. You read through the first part of it, Joe, but I just want to read through the whole thing as, as a unit here uh, again. And, and then I'd like to talk about this last phrase, um, covering a multitude of sins. But uh, just to read through this as, as a unit, starting in verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save him that is sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, it shall be forgiven him. Confess, therefore, your sins one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The supplication of a righteous man avails much in its working. Elijah was a man of like passions with us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. My brethren, if any among you err from the truth and one convert him, let him know 
that he who converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall cover a multitude of sins. Um, so, okay, it, uh, the thing that I wanted just to emphasize there, I think just reading it all through together again, you see that theme of prayer all the way through there. Um, you do see that mutuality, that concern for one another, praying for one another. And you now here at the end, you see the concern for the one who has erred from the truth. Um, this phrase, covering a multitude of sins, does it mean the same thing here that it means in 1 Peter 4, 8, where he says, above all things, be fervent in your love among yourselves, for love covers a multitude of sins. Well, um, what does it, let's first of all, what does it mean in James 5, covering a multitude of sins? So, I'm not even going to say traditionally. What I what I would teach from that and have taught from that is when we bring someone back from the error of their ways, we're saving them from from a lifelong or, or years more of sin to come. We're, mm -hmm. we're covering a multitude of sins in, the, in that we, we've turned them back. And so there were sins that they could have been committing, but they've turned back from the Lord and we've saved them from that. That is what I would teach from James 5. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. I think that's right. In 1 Peter 4, is he talking about the same thing, or is it a little different? He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Verse, let's read 7 through 9 together. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore of sound mind and be sober under prayer. Above all things, being fervent in your love among yourselves, for love covers a multitude of sins. Using hospitality one to another without murmuring. Is he talking here about the kind of situation you just described in James where somebody has gone astray and because of what I love him, I reach out to him and, and turn him back to the way that he needs to go, saving him from a lifetime of sin and condemnation? Or here in First Peter 4, is it to be more strongly connected with the idea of using hospitality without murmuring? Yes. So... For one, this is quoting Proverbs 10, right? And this, is this not, in essence, what Proverbs 10, 12 says? So hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all offenses. Mm -hmm. And so my mind would automatically go to interrelations with your brothers and sisters. And so the fact that verse 9 of 1 Peter 4 very clearly is talking about your working relationships with your brothers and sisters, then, yeah, I would apply it there in that our love for our brethren and our desire to work things out with them is going to cover a multitude of potential sinful things. Yeah. Um, if we're willing to love them and humble ourselves the way that we should and serve them. So am I off base if when I read first Peter four, eight, because, because obviously if somebody's committing adultery, I don't just say, well, you know what? I love him. So I'm just going to let that cover the sin. Um, it, so that's not love then that that's uh, right it's not know, that, that that's 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 the problem with that kind of thinking process which unfortunately we hear and see manifested far too often is that that that's not love covering a multitude of sins in any fashion um uh, it allowing a person to to continue in sin without encouraging them to stop is not at all love in, in any way defined biblically I mean, what does it go on to say down in verse 11? If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. 
God's words in very many places tell us to humbly, you know, get the log out of our eye so that we can go and, and point out the speck in our brothers and that we should be uh, gentle and spiritually restoring one another. And so th there is a, a commandment for us to be doing that with one another. And yet in some sense, in first Peter chapter, um, in first Peter chapter four, he's talking about love covering sins. Um, and I, and I wonder if the idea here, when I connect it with without murmuring, that's kind of interesting. We go back to James 5 and verse 9. He says, murmur not, brethren, one against another, that you be not judged. Um, but And I wonder if then the idea here in 1 Peter 8 of covering the multitude of sins is kind of like what, what James was saying back in James chapter 4 when he was talking about not being judges of the law, uh, that there's one judge. In other words, there are situations where the perception that one may have that somebody has sinned is more about my interpretation of their motive than necessarily about what they've actually done. And if I can avoid murmuring against others and I can, out of love, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, that it's, it's not like, okay, he's committed adultery and I'm going to ignore it, but it's like, you know, maybe I misconstrued what he meant by that or or what his motive was and i can i can let out of love quote cover a multitude of sins in that sense am i off base in thinking that's the idea in first peter four no i i think that's right and i, I really like uh, chase's connection and uh probably how it's quoted or how it's stated in proverbs 10 yeah uh, really helps us to to see that uh, that application, that 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 similar but different application. It's not separate and apart. They're <laughs> they're related, but they are different. Is uh, it a pericope, though? <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it is interesting that you brought up the first Peter because first Peter four and verse seven says to be watchful in your prayers. Just interesting how it, whatever the applications of these passages are, there's this consistent message throughout the, the letters to the Christians to, to be constantly praying. We began at James, you know, uh, asking for wisdom, James 1. Uh, we're closing James by talking about either praying if you're uh, uh, suffering, uh, singing psalms if you're cheerful, praying if you're sick. Praying if you need to confess your sins, uh, you know, uh, over and over. This idea of uh, this 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 prayer that is effective, that is working, uh, like Elijah's was. This and this alertness that you're talking about. I'll, I'll mirror. I'll go to the other side of the book of James. In the book of Hebrews, um, it uses similar language when it talks about paying attention so that we will not drift away. Mm -hmm. And you hear that similar language over here in James 5, if anyone strays from the truth. Mm -hmm. it really is fascinating that a departure from truth is not a, I wake up one morning and I've just decided I'm done following Jesus. Uh, th there's, there's a slow drift. There's a straying away that happens. And the call to be alert is not just for ourselves, but I think to also look out for the drifters and those who are straying so that we can bring them back in um, and if we're watchful in prayer, going to First Peter four, um, we'll, we'll know who those are who are straying and drifting. And and as well, you know, the way that this comes full circle, we're we're talking about 
speaking to God, but the example of Elijah in his fervent prayer that, 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 was, that did great work, that was very clearly based upon God's will, God's revealed will. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17, uh, God through Moses had, had promised them that if they turned away from them and uh, worshiped other gods and quit worshiping him and so forth, that he would shut up the, the, the heaven so that it wouldn't rain and there wouldn't be produce. Um, and so Elijah is not just inventing this idea to pray for there be, to be no rain. He, he's, he's seeing the idolatry in Ahab and Jezebel's day and how prevalent it is and saying, God, your will be done. You know, as you have, uh, uh, said, um, may 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 that come about to cause the repentance of uh, of these people. All right, we've got just uh, four minutes here. Can I go back to something early in the book of James that we didn't talk about? I I can't. I can. I okay. I can. Oh, I okay. I'm gonna. <laughs> so so let me walk through a, a connection. I think I see starting in James chapter one verse 12 all the way down through james chapter 1 and verse 20 and and tell me just honestly whether you you see this or not um whether i'm right or not so really i'm going to start in verse 13 let no man say when he is tempted and i'm going to pause right here to say in the bible when your bible says tempted you can put tested in there and that's going to convey the idea people have uh well let's just say that won't spend time on it. Uh, let no man say when he is tempted or when he's tested, I am tempted or tested of God, for God cannot be tempted or tested with evil, and he himself tempts no man, tests no man. The fact is, throughout the Bible, God has tested various people. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to Philip, uh, um, what he says, now I can't remember exactly what he said, but is in the anticipation of the feeding of the 5,000. And John tells us he said that to test him, uses the very same word that's used here. Um, but James goes on and says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no man. When it says he himself, I think he's making a point in John 4, the Pharisees saw that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then John explains, well, Jesus himself was not baptizing anybody, but his disciples were. Well, they were baptizing at Jesus' instruction at, at, as, as his agents, but they were actually doing the baptizing. And, and that's the way this himself functions here. God himself is not, is not uh, applying the test. The fact is, it wouldn't be a test except you have your own desires. And so it's your desires that you're really struggling with here. And so if you want to point the finger of blame, don't blame God. You've got to deal with your own desires. That's the issue. And then he goes on, and, and, and one can talk about the fact that God, when there's a test, he's not wanting you to fail, and that's true. And people will read that into the word tempt, and there are passages where certainly that's the idea. But I think sometimes we overlook the fact that James uses that word himself to point the finger at you. It's your desires that are the problem. And then he goes ahead and explains how that works. And then he says, in starting verse 17, 
Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom can be no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. What comes from God is good, unexceptionally good, without variation, even when he allows us to be tested. What's coming from God is good. And so then, verse 19, uh, you know this, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and I wonder if we shouldn't read that especially, not necessarily exclusively, but especially in the context of the man who's going to blame God. I'm mad at God because it's his fault. And, and James says, the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, put away all filthiness, overflowing of wickedness, and so on. The problem is you and your desires, and you need to change what you're doing rather than blaming God. I think I see that flow through there. Have I done violence to the text or can you, would you see that with me? Yeah. I, I think it's always helpful to look for connections with the next passage, the next verse or whatever, uh, instead of thinking of these as separated. I especially like your uh, connection with verses 19 and 20 there. Um, uh, that seems quite appropriate in my mind. All right. Well, thank you, guys. We are out of time. Uh, we do have one final comment. I, a viewer, Jim, says, I can definitely see how being tempted is also being tested. Temptations are definitely tests. I don't believe God tempts us, though. Uh, sometime we'll just have to talk. I'll spend a, uh, we'll spend a little bit of a broadcast talking about this idea of tempting and testing, which in English, we make a big distinction between those two. In the language of the Bible, you don't see that distinction. It may be two sides of, of a coin, but it's all part of the same thing. But we'll talk about that another time. Thank you all for listening. And uh, Lord willing, we'll see you all next week here on Bible Quest.